0: give them a second to, to do that. <clears throat> okay. Well, today as we continue our series entitled, What's in Your Hands? Uh, is a series we've been going through the last couple of weeks where we've been examining the subject of biblical stewardship. And today we're going to talk about the various, sometimes changing, Talents and abilities that God has placed into every single one of our hands. And so to begin that today, I invite you to consider. Consider all of the different, the different hats, if you will, that you're asked to wear over the course of a day or maybe even the course of, of a lifetime thus far. What I mean by hats are, are the different roles, the different responsibilities, the different positions in which you have found yourself having an opportunity to work or to live. If you're taking notes, if you're one of our great note takers in the bulletins or in your own tablets or books, you might want to just take a moment and start writing down some of the names of those responsibilities. For for example, uh, there's some relational hats that I've had the opportunity to wear, such as being a a husband, being a father, being a son, uh, a brother, a friend to many people. There's also professional hats that I've had the opportunity to wear. I have uh, the hat of, of pastor, of manager, at times, counselor, uh, teacher, mentor. The, the list goes on. There's, there's multiple types of hats, if you will, that we wear in different responsibilities and roles that we're called to live in. And I invite you to take a moment to maybe just jot a couple of those down or, or to think about what they may be. Because each of the ones that I've just mentioned for myself and each of the ones that you may have written down for yourself, they're not accidental. They're not given to you by accident, and each and every single one of them requires a unique talent or ability if you're going to successfully perform that role. And that's really in keeping with what we've been learning so far in this series, that as we come to see that everything we are and all that we have comes from God, has been given us to be managers of for His purposes and for His glory. So regardless of what may be on that list that you've mentally or just written down on your paper, you are called to be a steward within the context of each of those roles. Now in the book of Matthew, in chapter 25, we come across a very familiar parable. A parable that Jesus told that's known as the parable of the talents. And this is a story that you may be familiar with. It's it's a story of servants who were given talents by their master. And they were expected to show what they had done with them when their master returned. And in this story, Jesus is seeking to remind us to faithfully use and to faithfully honor God with the talents and the abilities that he has placed into our hands. Now the context in which Jesus shares this parable is in the context of his future return. If you're familiar with that part of the book of Matthew, you know that Matthew 24 and 25 are, are eschatological in nature. They're, they're looking towards the future return of Jesus Christ. Now, up until that point, he had been talking to his disciples about the fact that he would have to go away. And he was becoming more explicit in, in what that looked like, that he would be handed over into the hands of man, and they would, they would try him, and they would eventually crucify him. And he had talked about the need to go away, but here, as that time was getting very, very near... In his life, he's telling them that there's also a time when he will be coming back again. But it's a time that is only known by the Father. But while he was away, while he was away, he was giving them and he was giving us things to do. Things to care for, things to develop and grow as part of our Christian lives. As part of the walk that we have as we are to be followers of Jesus Christ. Now, when we hear those types of things, our minds, if it's any like mine, quickly jumps to the question, "Well, well, what has he given me? What has he called me to do? Those are natural questions. Those are not necessarily wrong questions. But I want to suggest to you today that there is a first question, that there's a question that actually comes before that, and it's the question that I want us to consider today as we walk through this parable. The question that comes before that is simply this, who am I? Or rather, Who am I called to be? You see, it's vitally important for us to address the who before we start worrying about the what are we to do. Because there are many people in this world who accomplish wonderful things, who accomplish great things. There are people in this world who even accomplish great things in the name of Jesus. And yet their hearts tend to be far from Him. Their hearts can still be far from Him. They they can be doing things in their own will and adding his name to it. And so it's not necessarily about the things that we do first and foremost. I think the first question we need to ask is, who are we called to be? Because when we do things, even great things, with a heart that is far from God, I'm not sure he's impressed. I'm not sure those things impress him. Because you see, the who matters more than the do. The who matters more than the do. And in the parable we're going to walk through today, I think we're going to see that the who we're called to be is the good and faithful steward. That's the who that we're called to be. Now, this parable opens, Matthew 25, starting in verse 14, and it speaks of a wealthy landowner who is leaving to go on a long journey. Now, as you may expect of, of uh, even that time and even in today's world, people who tend to be involved in wealthy businesses tend to travel. It's a common thing that happens for people in those positions. There's a lot of travel involved. And in the context in which this parable is told, quite often a, la- a wealthy landowner would have to travel to visit the ruler of the region in which he ha- had holdings in order to plead his case for his right to continue in those holdings that he had. Now, it's important for a man of of that status to to go on those trips, but it's also important for him to have some faithful stewards at home that can look after his business, that can look after his and maintain his capital while he is away on a trip. And so he needs to have these important, trustworthy stewards back at home. And in this parable, we read that this wealthy landowner has three servants, all of varying abilities that he leaves in charge while he goes away. We read this in verse 15, that that to one he gave five talents, to another he gave two, and to another he gave one, each according to their ability. And then he went away. Now in those days, the word talent referred to a weight of precious metal. That's what it's referring to here. It's referring to a weight of precious metal. It's often thought that in this parable, the metal in question is actually gold. And the weight that's associated with that in terms of gold, that would equal the amount of about $250,000 per talent. Now, that amount of money at that time was enough to pay a common laborer for about 20 years' wages. That means that the first servant received 100 years' wages. He received a million dollars. The second servant received 40 years' wages, about half a million dollars. And the third servant, he received 20 years' wages, about $250,000. Now notice that not even the third servant, the third servant who received the least amount, complained. He didn't stand up and go, Hey, why am I only getting one talent? Because he understood that what he'd received... He recognized that there was incredible and enormous amount of wealth, even in that one talent that he had received. And he also probably had an awareness that he really hadn't earned it. And he definitely didn't deserve that generous of a gift, even just with the one single talent. Now, is, is that often how you think we, as people, or people in the world in general, respond to such situations when one has ten, one has two, one has one? That, we, that we, we just accept and understand what we've received? I don't know. I, I think we, we want to be on the right side of that question. So I thought maybe we'll take a moment today and find out. Let's take a second and find out. You know, there's one thing I've learned since I've come to West Meadows, which happens to be five months this day that I've been here with you all. <laughs> oh, well, thank you. <laughs> thank you. It's just the start. We're going to keep going. <laughs> Um, in the last five months, one thing I've learned about our staff is our staff loves Coca-Cola, okay? That is true for for many of them, right? They love Coke. So I just happened to have some Coke with me today. And one person on our staff who absolutely loves Coke is Brenda. So Brenda, I have for you today a 500-milliliter bottle of Coke. I want to give this to you. This black liquid talent that I'm gonna give to you today. This is yours. This is yours to use as you see fit. Okay? Thank you. Now, now it's a bit of a toss-up as to who loves Coke the most. And and the next person, and it's a close, it's a close second, I'm not sure actually comes out on top, but but Shelly loves Coke a lot too. Is that right, Carrie? Oh yeah. Absolutely. So Shelly. You know, I, I, have, I have a, a one-liter bottle of Coke for you, which I'm going to run down to you. So here's your one-liter black liquid talent. There you go. You're welcome. That is for you to use as you as you wish. Uh, water and coffee only in the sanctuary, please. I may or may not have shaken it. Okay, so we'll see. Now, now... We've had 500 milliliters. We've had one liter. You know, when I was in Mexico, I saw a three-liter bottle of Coke. But what do you think we have next? So I thought, you know what? Zach, you are the tallest guy on staff, so we should, going with that, Zach, I, well, I have a mini can <laughs> for you. But, but be, this is yours, I want you to have it. But, but I don't know if you want it, though. Like, like Brenda got 500 milliliters. Shelly got 1,000. Like, this is 222. Do, do, you, do you still want it? Yeah, <laughs> Here we go. So this is for you, Zach. That's for you. Yes. Here you go. <laughs> I know I shook that one for sure. So, but now... Does anybody feel slighted? Zach? A little bit? <laughs> you know, that, that's that's not uncommon, actually. When, when we look around and see, well, Brenda, how do you feel knowing that, that Shelly got a leader? Is that is that okay with you? Or? It's okay? Okay. You see, seeing this, there's a tendency to look at what we have. And do we often look up or do we look down? We have such a tendency to look up and go, well, well, I, I just got a mini can, but Shelly got that. Brenda got that, and, and it's less than mine. But if we have that sort of a perspective with the talents we receive, we lose sight of the fact that there's a few hundred people in here who have less than Zach has. And I apologize to all of you people. <laughs> but that's the direction that, um, that we want to avoid looking is looking up. The way we need to be looking instead is simply is what God has placed in our hands. Look at what he's placed in our hands. Understand that that is what has been placed. And my role is not to look up or to look down, but to be faithful to use what he has placed in our hands. Because the reality is this. We can't all be business tycoons like, like Steve Jobs managed to be. We can't all be artists like Michelangelo, have minds of Einstein. We can't all sell out nine shows in a week in Edmonton like Arthur Brooks managed to do. We can't all have the skill of a Connor McDavid And so if we're to avoid comparing talents and instead look at the abilities that God has given to each, if we can manage to keep that as the focus of our minds, then we will be in a wonderful position to exclaim as the psalmist did, I praise you, God, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Just the way I am, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. I praise you for what you have placed into my hands, not what I see others having, but for what you have gifted to me which you have seen fit to bless me with, and I will honor you, and I will serve you with what I have, with what you have given me. And that's the attitude some of the servants took. So they received these talents from their master, and they set out to decide how they will use each talent that has been entrusted to them. The first servant, who was given five talents, he had a high ability. He was given five talents. Perhaps, we, we don't know exactly what he did, but perhaps he was the type of person who, who follows the markets closely. He always knows the crop prospects. He, he anticipates opportunities as they come up, and so he invested his five talents wisely, and he doubled his money. He received five more. The second steward, he, he wasn't quite as, as gifted, quite as the same ability. He only received two, and yet he took those two talents, and, and he may not have been as sharp or as adventurous as the first steward, but but I can imagine perhaps he was a hard, loyal worker. And so he took his money and he secured some land, and he drove his oxen hard, and he pruned his vineyard diligently, and from his efforts and from his labors, he too received 100% gain. He had two more talents to show for it. Now the third servant was a bit of a different guy. Different stripe. He decided that it was wisest to avoid risk. He thought, you know what, I'm going to avoid any sort of risk. I'm going to play it safe. I'm going, to, I'm going to be cautious, and I'm just going to hide it in the ground. I'm just going to bury my talent in the ground. Now, let's not be too quick to judge this guy, because burying it in the ground, actually, uh, was not just him being lazy. That's what we might think. If you bury something in the ground, maybe he's just being lazy. But, you know, by the standards of the day in which Jesus is telling this parable, hiding money in the ground actually was a traditional way of saving money. And so he was choosing this direction of of saving money. Now, we could argue it was a valid direction, just not a very good one. Because you can probably guess the rate of return when you bury something in the ground. It's not going to cover your retirement when you dig it back up again. Now, after a long time, the day finally arrives where the master comes home, and he wants to settle his accounts with his servants. And so the man who had received five talents brings in five more. The man who had received two talents brings in his two additional. And to these two men, they both place their, their, their talents before their master to the one who had entrusted his, his wealth and his business interests to them. And he replies to them by saying, Well done. Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. And now come... And share in your master's happiness. He says the same things to both of them. Now notice, if you will, that there is no mention that one gained significantly more than the other. There's no additional or special treatment for the ten-talent servant over the four-talent servant. You see, in our economy, there's a difference there. But in God's economy, there isn't, because the measurement is not the money. The measurement is not the money. The measurement is the faithfulness that each of them showed. And the question is not how many talents did you earn me, but rather what have you done with what I entrusted to you? The question is not what treasure have you gained for me, but the question is what faithfulness have you shown me? See, the amount they brought in differed greatly, but the faithfulness to their master was the same, and that was the measurement that he used. Which brings to mind another story that we find in the Gospels. The story of a poor widow whom Jesus saw give all that she had to the temple treasury. This poor widow who was approaching the temple as as so many other rich rulers were coming forward and, and putting in large gifts into the temple treasury. All she had literally was two copper coins to rub together. And she placed those two pennies in the temple treasury. And from those looking around, they may have thought, well, what's the point? What could you possibly buy with two pennies? What difference could two pennies make? But when Jesus saw this, he declared to all who were standing around, he says, truly, I tell you the truth, this poor widow has put in more than all of the others together have put in. And now, to those standing around, they may have assumed that Jesus just was bad at math or Maybe Jesus didn't understand economics. Because judging the gift by the monetary value that she placed in compared to everybody else's, the obvious difference was significant. But what was not obvious was that judging her by her faith and devotion, she gave the most. And so to two servants, and essentially to a poor widow, Jesus declares, well done, good and faithful servant. And the reward that they each received is in keeping with their devotion to the owner. You see, they will be entrusted with even greater opportunities. They will be entrusted with even greater talents. But more importantly, more important than that, because we don't want to get hung up on the do. More important than that, they have true satisfaction that comes from the master's approval. Their true reward comes from the fact that they share in the master's joy over their faithfulness to him. Now in contrast to the first two. In walks the third servant. Now, he has a different account. He has a different account of what happened with what was entrusted to him. And he reveals to his master this single talent. And he explains to his master, I, I, I decided to hide it in the ground. I, I decided to save it. You know, and here it is. Here it is, just as you gave it to me. It's ready to be used, just as, just as you gave it to me. You see, master, there isn't any more. But on the bright side, there isn't any less. And he explains... Master, I I know that you're a hard man. I know that you harvest where you have not sown, and you you gather where you have not scattered seed. So I, I was afraid. I was afraid, and I went out, and I hid your talent in the ground. Now, theologians have been divided for years as to what the servant is really saying here. Some suggest that he is speaking confidently. Some suggest that what he's offering is not an excuse, but rather... Just explaining confidently and boldly the decision that he's made. The most prominent view, however, is that this third servant is speaking from a place of fear. He's speaking from a place of fear where he's actually apologizing and trying to justify what he has done, or in fact, what he hasn't done. You see, in this bit of a cryptic statement, he's stating his belief that he works for a man who is harsh, he believes that his master is unloving and requires nothing less than perfection. He believes that this man that he is in the service of seeks to only enrich himself through the work of others and, and to profit where he has no right to gain profit. Basically saying that his master is a heartless slave driver who just gets ahead on the backs of others. And because of this, because of this view, He's afraid he might disappoint his master. And so instead of disappointing his master, he decides to play it safe. Because after all, it's better safe than sorry, right? But there's an inconsistency in his logic here. And now after the master calls him wicked and lazy, the master repeats those words back to him to point out the inconsistency in what he's just said, what he's just stated as his belief for the master is. Not only has the example of the two other servants who have just received accommodations and and entering into the the happiness of their master, not only does that contradict what he has just said, but his words himself, along with his actions, are contradictory. And so the master repeats back to him. He says, "You, you knew me? You knew me to be a hard man who was only after the very best? In your mind, you've painted me as, as, as a profiteer? You know, if that really was the case, if you really truly believe that I'd accept nothing less than the best, why have you done less than the least? If you really truly believe that's who I was, if you really thought I was that harsh of a man, why would you do less than the least? After all, the very least you could have done was to invest the money. Give it to one of the money changers who would have given it back to you with some interest attached to it. But no, you decided to stick it in the ground and hope for the best. Well, if you stick it in the ground, the best you can hope for is that it will eventually rot. At least you could have given it to somebody else. At least somebody else could have done something with it. And so that's what the master does. He orders that single talent to be removed from that servant and is now given to the one that has ten. And he decrees that this wicked servant is to be removed from his home and cast out into the cold, dark streets. And then the lesson from this parable is summarized in verse 29. As Jesus declares, For to whoever, for to everyone who has will more be given. And he will have an abundance. For from the one who has not, Even what he has will be taken away. Now let me ask you a question. Do you think this guy deserves such a strong rebuke? Do you think this third servant was really such a bad guy? Like, consider it. After all, he was honest. Right? He told the truth. He didn't steal the money from his master. He didn't use it for personal profit. The master was gone for a long time. He could have taken that quarter million dollars and squandered it over a long that's some good living for a lot of years. He could have squandered it and when it was gone he could have run away. He could have done that. And we're also told at the beginning of the parable that he had some ability. He was one of the trusted servants that he was given some of the some of the talents to look after for his master. And even in his action, there seems to be some sense of responsibility for for what he was entrusted with. So is is he really such a bad guy? No, really, what is is his crime? Why is his master so incensed to the point that he would label him as wicked? Well, I think there's a twofold answer to that question. You see, first of all, I I think it's justified because of the servant's poor view of who his master is. He had a very poor view of his master, and that view kept him from faithfully serving his master, kept him from advancing the capital, the holdings of his master. And so this negative misconception produced alienation. It it produced mistrust and fear. It resulted in a lack of action because of the view he had of who his master was. And by the result of that, the talent he was given, it, it just went unused. The talent he was given, which was given for a purpose, never even came close to reaching its potential. But secondly, I think he lacked the imagination. He he lacked the imagination to see that every single talent is precious. Every talent that God has given to them, every talent God has given to us is precious. And I think this third servant devalued the gift that he had received. You know, regardless of the size, regardless of the amount, every talent is needed by the owner. Every talent is given with a purpose by the owner. And in our human wisdom, we often fall short of understanding how significant even the smallest single talent can become. You know, Jesus talked often about we're not in a position to to gauge the significance and want to draw our attention to such things. Jesus spoke about how a cup of water, when given in love, can be significant. He spoke actually just immediately following this parable about how how there's a need to feed the hungry, to give a drink to the thirsty, to, to welcome in the stranger, to clothe the naked, to visit those who are sick or those who are imprisoned. You see, such simple acts of kindness that may only take a moment out of our day, may only take a second out of our lifetime, they can be seen as deeds with cosmic and eternal significance when they are done From the point of faithfully loving and committing to the master who has placed those things before us. Because remember, the who matters more than the what. And in responding to each of the servants, the master looked at them and it wasn't a matter of who earned the most. It wasn't a matter of who had the biggest gains. It wasn't a matter of of who was the top salesman, who was the top investor, who's my guy, who puts in the most hours. That wasn't the measurement that he used to, to validate or qualify what had happened. But instead, he looked at what they had been faithful with. And he declared, well done, good and faithful servant. You see, if, if the five-talent steward had showed up with two talents, that would have equaled the amount of the two-talent steward. But I don't think it would have been acceptable in the eyes of the master. Because that means three talents went unused. And he was a high-capacity steward. He was given five talents for a reason. It was according to his ability. The master saw fit to say, I know you can handle five, and I want you to go out and use all five. Even if he had used three of them, it still would have been more than the two-talent guy, but I'm not sure the master would have responded the same way. So the measurement isn't how much or the what. The focus is upon the who. Who sought to use what had been given in advancing the master's holdings. So that in the end, When they were called to give an account, they had the opportunity to share in the Master's glory. Now, the English term for the word talent that we find in this parable has been, or the the current understanding of the word talent we have is derived from this parable. And in in our world today, the word talent is commonly used to refer to natural endowments that we have. And this is appropriate. It's it's an appropriate usage of, of the term. But to draw a little closer to the intent of this parable, it more specifically symbolizes the giftedness that has been bestowed upon each person. Now, some of that giftedness may show up in the form of naturally endowed abilities, but also could refer to the gifts that we receive from the Holy Spirit when we accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. But a combined perspective is what's important here, that all of these things are to be used in the service of God and in the service of His kingdom. Paul talked about this in First Corinthians 12 when he said, Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers all of them in everyone. All that we are, whether it is naturally endowed or spiritually bestowed, all that we are, all that we have is intended to be employed in the service of the kingdom. And so there is no such thing as a small gift. There is no such thing as a small calling or a small talent. All of them are inherently valuable. All of them are given with purpose and the service of the kingdom. And each talent is an opportunity for us to honor the master and an opportunity for us to make an investment in his kingdom. He has been given to us by God according to our abilities. And each of them represents work that is there for us to do before the master returns. Because that day is coming, ladies and gentlemen, when the master will return. And the opportunity to lose the ta- use the talent will be gone at that moment. Now is the time when we can use them. We can use them now to further the kingdom and to share the good news of Jesus Christ. So let's not devalue or hide any of the talents that God's placed into our hands. however, our faithfulness is somewhat contingent upon an accurate view of who God is. That's vitally important to our correct perception. Now, maybe you see him similar to the wicked servant. Maybe you're sitting here today and, and you think, you know what, my experience with God does match him being harsh. I think he is heartless. I think he is unapproachable. And, and I either have fear, maybe I'm just indifferent. Perhaps it's something from your past that has tarnished your view of God that you hear about, this loving God that you hear about. And if that's the case for you right now, I'd not be surprised if you find it hard to even want to serve God with what he's placed in your hands. Why would you want to increase his kingdom if you have a negative view of who he is? I can understand that that might be a point where some people are at. As I've been saying, we need to start with the Who? The who is more important than the do, and this applies to God as well, because we have to beg that we have to ask the question: Who do we say that God is? Who do we say is His character, His activities, His goals for our lives? Who do we say God is? And this is the role. That's what. This is the reason that people so often encourage us towards things like like reading our Bibles, to studying the Scriptures, to engage in times of prayer. This is why it's so important to be part of a church where there's solid teaching and preaching that takes place. And, and along with all those things, that's why I'm such a huge believer in small group ministries that we have here, and, and you'll be hearing more about in the days ahead. Because in those small group ministries, we have a chance to come together and to journey together in life. If, if, if you're in a point of wrestling or doubting, and it's simply limited to a time of personal prayer, personal devotion, that, that has some value. I don't want to devalue that by any means. But those doubts or those questions need to be brought into the light. They need to be brought into the light so they can be revealed to some trusted people who then can walk with us for a while, who can help us wrestle with those things, where we can learn from one another and challenge one another. And I believe if we will engage in those meaningful community type of experiences that not only will we come to learn more about what Scripture says about who God is, but I believe that you will come to see things. You will come to find God, as so many other people have. You will come to find that God is real, that He is present, that He is loving and merciful, because God is an ever-present help in the times of trouble. I believe if you engage in those types of things, you will come to find that God is sovereign, that He is holy and that He is just, and that the heavens themselves declare the the righteousness of God, and that all people will come to see his glory. I believe that through activities such as that, you'll also find that God is powerful. You'll find that he is unchanging and that he is trustworthy in every situation and that he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And I believe you'll also come to find that God loved you so much that he sent his son Jesus Christ to die for you. That he loved you first when we were undeserving when we had certainly not earned it like any of the stewards. And yet that itself was placed into our hands to receive if we would choose to do so. That he loves us so much he was willing to die for us. And this is just a sample of who we will find God to be if we will engage in the activities of learning more about him. And I believe these will all serve to help us answer the question, who? And if we can answer the question, who is God? God? And who am I called to be? There's that other question I've been avoiding this whole time. What do I do? I've intentionally avoided that this morning because I think we jumped to that first. And I want to encourage you to say that's not unimportant. That is another critical question. But my fear is that if we jump to the do before we worry about the who, we could accidentally end up being one of those people who does great things, but whose heart is still far from God. And so I honestly believe if we will focus upon the who is God and who has he called me to be, the answer of which is a good and faithful servant, that if we will focus upon that, then through that walk with him, the do will make itself apparent. And if we will do that, the question will be answered in the process of becoming the who. And we then have an opportunity to go and serve him powerfully with those talents that he's blessed us with. Now, as the worship team comes forward to join me in the platform, I invite you to consider again those various hats that you wear that we talked about at the start of the the sermon today. Now maybe you made a list of them in your notes at the beginning and maybe you just mentally thought about some of them. Some of these may be past hats you've worn, past roles. Some of them may be present ones. But as we now close with, as we come to this time of reflection and response, I invite you to consider this question. What talent have you been given that has enabled you to be successful in each of those roles you've been called to? Or perhaps there's a role you were called to and you weren't successful in it, but if you look back, there was a talent that went unused, and maybe that's the reason there was a challenge there. What was that talent that's associated with that hat that you've been given to wear? And how could you use that talent to serve and honor God? How could you put it to use so that you too will hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. You know, it's exciting to know that God cared enough, that he trusted enough, not only to give us the talents, but that he also saw fit to call us to use them in the continuation of the work that he started. That we could go forth and that we could show and tell the good news of Jesus Christ to all people that we meet. And so as we sing this song, Jesus, take all of me. I invite you to reflect upon his equipping and his calling in your life.